The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In his second inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln stated that all knew that slavery was somehow the cause of the war. At the time, no one disputed it. But in the years since 1865, a completely different interpretation has taken hold of the public mind. How did this happen and why? Our guest today proposes that, like good historians, we go back to the original sources to find out. Our guest's name is James W. Lowen, and his new book, co-edited with Edward H. Sebesta, is called The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, The Great Truth About the Lost Cause. We'll talk about it today on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Introducing the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit thegreentalknetwork.com and tune in to help spread the green. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you this afternoon, the 1st of October in 2010, from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, but not speaking for the university, just sitting here in the building overlooking the soggy grounds of the campus after five straight days of rain. The sun is finally coming through. And my guest, I know, will speak for himself likewise, not for ECU nor for any other institution. Everyone's floating on his own bottom here, as we say. Well, it is uh, the, the, well, it's no longer the beginning of a new season. We've been at it for a month now. Uh, the football season is back underway. A season of youth soccer has begun, and I'm not part of it for the first time in many years as my daughters have moved uh, either up in age or on to other sports like cross-country. So no news from the Greenville Stars. The world awaits uh, how they're doing. I'll have to find out from their current coach. If you're interested, as always, in contributing to Civil War Talk Radio with a contribution to help purchase the books that we discuss or the uh, beverages that I consume while reading the books uh, or while talking to you right now, like caffeine-free Diet Cola, 
you can do that at PayPal. Go to the PayPal website and send uh, your hard-earned funds to civilwartr at aol.com, and that's where uh, I, that's where they go. If you have comments or uh, things to say about the show, send them to my address at ecu.edu. Uh, you'll have to look it up, but I'm, I'm convinced everyone listening to the show can find it. Uh, the, uh, the the Civil War TR address is just for the PayPal receipts and doesn't get checked uh, with the constant regularity as the ECU address. So that's where you can send information to be checked on immediately. Well, we've got this week... Uh, well, no other no other local news other than the vast amount of, of rain, which actually coming through the roof of our house last night. Quite a uh, exciting moment that. Uh, briefly, as we found a leak and the streets were flooded, and uh, Greenville, North Carolina, all of eastern North Carolina was uh, soaked. But it's all going down now, and we'll we'll be back to normal in, in moments. And getting back to normal, back to the 19th century. Uh, Actually, our talk today will cover not just the 19th century, but range up to the present, uh, looking at the phenomenon of how the war has been interpreted uh, in the years since 1865, and in particular how the uh, the lost cause interpretation has gained uh, credence, uh, seemingly in, in spite of variance with uh, a lot of the facts on the subject. So uh, our Guest today, James W. Lowen, has co-edited with uh, Edward H. Sebesta a book called The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader. Uh, the subtitle is The Great Truth, in quotation marks, about the lost cause, also in quotation marks. And it uh, consists of writings from the 19th and 20th centuries that show how this uh, interpretation has evolved. Well, the person best to talk about it would, of course, be uh, its editor, uh, uh, James W. Lowen, who is with us today. Are you there, Jim? I am. Thanks for uh, joining me on the show. How, sure. how are you doing? I'm doing fine. It, uh, you, you, When I last talked uh, on this show about four or five years ago, uh, we were discussing uh, Lies Across America, your, your excellent book on the uh, peculiar and often humorous if they weren't so sad uh, misstatements that appear on monuments and, and historical markers and plaques around the country. Yes. Uh, I still teach that book. Uh, in fact, I'm teaching it next week to a public history class. So I just want you to know that that's still still getting uh, attention. Yeah, I think it has both um, uh, staying power and also parts of it are just hilarious. It, it is. Who, who knew that uh, Texas was the scene of the first human flight? And, yes. Uh, uh, and the, the fact that it was allegedly powered by four vertically mounted paddle wheels only adds to the story. It, it does. <laughs> I want to tell the listeners, vertically mounted paddle wheels do not work in air. They work great on water because there's a difference between water and not water, but they don't work so well on the air. I would think not, and I hope our listeners will not will not experiment with that. Certainly. Well, I think it'd be safe. Well, that's true. Yeah, we wouldn't get off the ground. ground. I guess they're, they're they're pretty safe there. Well, this um, this book we have here, the the Confederate and Neo Confederate Reader, with a very striking 
uh, representation of the Confederate battle flag on the cover, such yeah. as I, wa- I walk around with it and people stop and ask me, what am I reading? Yeah, um, yeah it is really quite a choice, and I had nothing to do with that choice. I did have a lot to do with the choice of publisher, and of course the choice of publisher is very appropriate too. It's the University Press of Mississippi. And, and how did you come to choose that press? Well, what what state owns, quote, un, owns the Confederate flag? That would certainly be Ole Miss and the University of Mississippi football team. That was part of it. And then also I lived in Mississippi for, for seven or eight years, and I know that the University of Pre- Press of Mississippi is not an old-time southern white apology force like it maybe was maybe 20 years ago. Uh, it, it's a forward-thinking press, and, and so they were happy to get it, and I was happy to take it to them. Well, there's a certain uh, certain appropriate irony in this. There's an irony there, yes, absolutely. Now, when when you were in Mississippi, in in your, I, I'm thinking it was your first book, the first book I'm aware of, the uh, lies my teacher told me. Where no, you write not about my first book, but that'll do. Yeah. Uh, but high school textbooks were the subject there, and I believe yeah. you mentioned being involved in a lawsuit in Mississippi. Yeah. Yes. Uh, actually, it was my second book that provoked that lawsuit. Uh, I, I taught at a predominantly black college, Tougaloo College in Mississippi. I also taught some at uh, Millsaps College, particularly in the field of uh, methods and statistics, because they needed somebody to, to teach that course and didn't have anybody at the time. But mostly I taught at Tougaloo College. Well, I had this aha reaction, or actually it was an oh, oh no reaction, uh, my first year teaching at Tougaloo, my first full-time year teaching anywhere. Uh, and I was teaching a course called the Freshman Social Science Seminar. It wasn't in my home discipline, sociology, but it, of course, included, it was an introduction to sociology, to econ, to psych, to poli-sci, and so on. And this course did this in the context of African-American history. Made sense, most of our students being African-American. Well, when you're in that context, that's, of course, the same calendar, literally, as American history. And so... uh, second semester begins right after the Civil War, not just right after Christmas, and it begins with the period we know as Reconstruction. So the first day of class there, I asked my students, 17 students, all African American, um, I, I still remember the room even, uh, it made such an impression on me. I said, so I didn't want to do all the talking that first day of class. I said, so what, what was Reconstruction? What happened then? And 16 out of 17 of them told me, well, that... That was the period right after the Civil War when blacks took over the government of the southern states, but they were too soon out of slavery, and so they screwed up, and white folks had to take control again. (sighs) I mean, that's quite a statement. Blacks never took over the government of the southern states. All of the states had white governors. All but one had white legislative majorities throughout the Reconstruction period. Second, the Reconstruction governments didn't particularly screw up. Mississippi in particular had better government during Reconstruction than at any later point in the 19th century. And so third, it wasn't that whites took control again. It was a certain group of whites, of course. It was white ex-Confederates or white racist Democrats. And, of course, the Democrats called themselves the uh, white man's party into the 1920s. Um, So that got me aware that history can be a weapon, that history can be used against you, and it had been used against my students. And really, that was the spark years ago that finally led to this book today, The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader. So these students had been given a version of history their whole lives. Yep, in the the public schools of the state of Mississippi. And incidentally, this was just before massive school desegregation. Black teachers had done this to them because they were just teaching what was in the book. 
And Tuchel is a good school. My, my students had learned what was in the book. They would have been better off if they had not, but they had. Now, you point out in the introduction to this book that you have you had similar experiences yeah. uh, around the country, the, country not yes. just in a black college in the 1960s, but other regions and other All decades. All over the place. Let, let me tell the story. Um, I have been asking big teacher groups and other groups, too, for the last five years, really, um, what caused the southern states to secede? Why did they secede? Why did they say they seceded, for that matter? And I always get four answers. The southern states seceded over slavery. They seceded for states' rights. They seceded because of the election of Lincoln, and they conceded owing to tariffs and taxes or issues about tariffs and taxes. Well, then I, those are the four answers that you always get, no matter where you are in the country. Then you ask, I ask, okay, let's have a vote on this matter. And my one-liner is, this is not Chicago. You can only vote once. <laughs> so they laugh, and uh, they vote. Well, uh, typically, 60 to 75% vote for just one alternative, and that alternative is states' rights. And so then I say, okay, well, uh, what do we do now? Do we just say, well, states' rights won, and that's the end of it? Well, no, of course, my teachers say, that's not how you do history. We need evidence. And so we discuss what would good evidence be, and pretty soon people are saying, well, how about newspaper stories from Charleston, South Carolina, when South Carolina seceded? And, and pretty soon somebody comes up with, well, wait a minute, didn't South Carolina secede by a convention? Didn't they actually say why they were seceding? And, of course, that's the very best answer of all. And I say, well, yes, and here's a, here's a document. And the document's title is Declaration of the Immediate Causes Which Induce and Justify the Secession of South Carolina – from the Federal Union. Could be relevant, you know. It sounds <laughs> I mean, like it's pretty on point. Smoking gun. So, now, can I read from it? Go ahead. This is what they say. Um, we assert that 14 of the states have deliberately refused for years past to fulfill their constitutional obligations, and we refer to their own statutes for the proof. Well, now, constitutional obligations, that, that's kind of vague. Um, but they go right on to be very specific. They go on to say, the Constitution of the United States, in its fourth article, provides as follows. No person held a, quote, no person held a service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Well, that is, of course, the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution. So it begins to look like maybe by the answer in slavery, not states' rights. Then they go on to talk about states' rights. And here's what they say. The states of Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and they name 16 of them in all, have enacted laws which either nullify the acts of Congress or render useless any attempt to execute them. And they go on, in many of these states, the fugitive is discharged from the service. So it's, again, about slavery. And then they're mad at New York, for instance, because New York no longer allows what is called slavery transit. Now, this is the idea that, well, for example, the, the rich white folks of, of uh, Charleston don't necessarily want to spend August in Charleston. They might want to spend August on the Hamptons in Long Island or, or watching Broadway plays. 
and they'd like to bring their cook along. They don't want to cook their own foods. And New York says, uh-uh, you can't do that anymore. If you bring, we're trying to run a free state. If you bring your cook here, or any slave, she becomes free. Well, South Carolina is outraged at this attempt at states' rights. South Carolina is outraged at the New England states because the New England states let blacks vote. Well, heck, who votes in America was a state's right until the passage of the 15th Amendment, two whole eras after this during Reconstruction. But nevertheless, South Carolina is outraged by this state's right. So the people across the country who say states' rights are correct, if by that they mean that South Carolina seceded because they were mad at the northern states and at the rights those northern states claimed. But they don't mean that, of course. So the document that you're quoting here, the South Carolina secession document, doesn't say anything about uh, uh, the federal infringement on their states' rights. Not at all. And, of course, in fact, the South Carolina was perfectly happy with the federal government under Buchanan. Why wouldn't it be? Buchanan was a member of the fallout pro-slavery wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, his newspaper has, had actually advocated that uh, the interference with all kinds of property ownership in the free states is an outrage, or in other words, that there should be no such thing as free states, that you ought to be able to take your slave property anywhere you can take any other property. Uh, so they had no quarrel with Buchanan or with his administration, and of course Lincoln hadn't even taken office. So their quarrel is with the states uh, in the North that are trying to interfere with uh, slavery. It's all about slavery. Now, the, within the historical profession, there's not a lot of debate about this. There is, there's, really. Uh, there's one recent book that uh, takes a, Mark Egnall's analysis, argues it's more economic, but even there, uh, slavery is at the heart of the economic system. One slave. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not... Uh, but, I mean, the overwhelming majority of historians would agree that right. slavery is, is right. behind this. Well, and here's just a, a, a single, maybe two sentences from the Mississippi Declaration mm -hmm. About a month after South Carolina, quote, this, this is the first operative paragraph, really. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of the commerce of the earth. That's pretty clear. As Lincoln said, I, I was delighted with your Lincoln quote at the start of the program. All knew that slavery was somehow the cause of this great conflict. That's what he says in 1865, and all did know it in 1860 and 61, and they still knew it in 1865. But then between 1890 and 1940, we started systematically forgetting it. Well, let's, let's, before we get ahead to that, I want to sure. ask a question about this. Um, the, it, well, another source of, of, of very clear documentation of what the Southern uh, uh, leaders and voters thought they were doing in 1860 and 61 uh, were the, the, uh, the acts of the secession conventions, as you quoted, and the commissioners who visited them. What I'd like to do is ask you about that in just a minute. We're going to take a short break and come right back. We're talking today with Jim Lowen. He's a co-editor of the Confederate and Neo-Confederate Neo Reader, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel.
The Southern Secession Convention statements and the commissioners who went to other states said things that constitute the smoking gun of what caused the war. They said it was slavery. How do people today still resist that conclusion? We'll ask our guest Jim Lowen when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Life navigation sounds simple enough, but it is really about harnessing the power of your own intuition to focus on the positive things in your life rather than the negative. Host Augustina Torgelson will help you to lead a happier life with less stress. Augustina's vision is to see a world of one community living in harmony with nature and earth. Embark on the journey of self-exploration and new opportunities. Tune in to Life Navigation every Tuesday at 8 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. I'm talking today with Jim Lowen, who's the co-editor of The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, The Great Truth About the Lost Cause. It's a book of documents and interpretations of those documents dating back to the pre-Civil War era, dating back to the Constitution, uh, portraying the attitudes towards slavery and secession up to the war, and then, as we'll talk about later this afternoon, also uh, attitudes toward the war and what it was about and how they changed in the decades that followed. But going up to the war, uh, Jim, you, you quoted the uh, South Carolina and Mississippi conventions being very clear and explicit that slavery was what they were seceding over. Uh, they don't say anything or very little about the tariff. Uh, they don't nope. talk about states' rights except to nope. say their states uh, that, that the northern states are exercising too much states' rights in, in the, the personal liberty laws and other actions. Now, some historians have uh, described this as, as the smoking gun. In particular, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Charles Dew's uh, book on the Confederate secession commissioners, right. uh, Apostles of Disunion, as, as these people go from one state to another to urge the next southern state to join the new confederacy, they're very clear in their argument that it's all about slavery and white supremacy. So my question to you is, if the record is this crystal clear, what happened? How how did we forget? How did it get so murky? How did it get so murky? Yeah. Well, it was clear, as I said, um, right uh, before the war. It was clear during the war. even after the war, uh, during Reconstruction, um, it was pretty clear. Now, I have to say that secession on the South's part was not only about slavery, but also for white supremacy. And, of course, we have this remarkable um, talk, famous speech, really, by um, Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, uh, about mm, three weeks after he takes office, uh, in which he... Um, that's where we get the title, The, the Great Truth. Um, and Stevens uh, really, really lays it out on the line. Um, he says, quote, 
our new government is, well, he's first lamenting the equal rights tinge to such declarations as the Declaration of Independence. And you can see some of it in the Constitution back in the previous generation of Jefferson and Washington. And he says, our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and moral condition. Well, uh, after the Civil War, slavery by then has a bad name. It's, it's dead. It's been killed by the 13th Amendment. It's been killed by the Union victories, finally, in, in Richmond and elsewhere. And so you can't really resurrect it. And so very, there's still a few uh, ex-Confederates who go off to Brazil trying to maintain slavery, but pretty much it's dead. But white supremacy is by no means dead. And so clearly, uh, and we have the documents again, during Reconstruction, um, they exhort the, the southern white folks to, to work for white supremacy, and they do. And, of course, the, the Ku Klux Klan and democratic violence um, wins the South by 1877, uh, even though a fair election would have resulted in an interracial Republican Party victory in most southern states this latest, well, throughout the 19th century, really. So white supremacy is kind of the fallback position. But then, beginning in about 1890, um, the... the we got to have to call them the neo-Confederates because it's a new generation now. It's not just the Confederates; it's neo-Confederates. They they change their line a little a little further, and in fact, a lot. And this is when they establish a new name for the Civil War. And now everybody's calling it. Even a lot of people in the North are calling it the War Between the States. Not one person called it that while it was going on. Um, and the, this is when they relabel what it was about. And now, allegedly, we were fighting for states' rights. Um, and now it's, it's very alluring because, you know, anybody who's had an argument with the, with the IRS wants to identify with David against the Goliath of the, of the federal government. It just isn't true. Well, if the, I mean, the argument is changing, as you say, through the late 19th century. Uh, the, the speech you, you quoted, the Alexander Stevens speech, the, the, the cornerstone speech, is, yeah. is very, very clear, again, at the beginning of the war. I've had this experience of, of, of teaching that material and talking to people who still want to resist it. And one of the arguments I've heard is, well, those are just politicians talking, and you can't judge what a society thinks by the speeches politicians make, because we all know all politicians are all liars all the time. Yeah. Uh, that's a, how, how do you respond to if you well, get that first argument? Of all, People do, when, when they go off to war, they do listen to uh, the call, and they do obey it because of what the, what the government is allegedly for. And, uh, the, well, I'll give you a, kind of a specific response to what you said. Um, everyone who studied the Civil War knows that there were uh, a number of incidents in which uh, black troops, once they were allowed to take the field on the side of the Union, uh, which is, means after January 1st, 1863, uh, black troops lost or were on the losing side of various battles, and as soldiers, of course, will do when they lose, they surrendered. Uh, and everyone knows there are these incidents in which black POWs were executed over the next two days 
at the battlefield, for instance. It happened most famously at Fort Pillow in Tennessee, but it also happened at Poison Spring in Arkansas and at Saltville in Virginia and uh, places in, in Mississippi and Florida and elsewhere. Well, uh, it's often been blamed on the Confederate rank and file, uh, that they were so upset with the idea that they would be facing black troops. And also in the heat of the battle, because after all, people were shooting at them just a few hours or even minutes before, uh, so they just revenged themselves by executing the black troops and, of course, the white leaders of the black troops. But it turns out that that was Confederate policy from top down, and we have documents by both Jefferson Davis and by the Confederate Congress and by the Secretary of War telling troops to do just that. Well, that kind of knocks in a cock out the idea that uh, the rank and file felt somewhat different. Uh, they, in fact, they were at least co-participants in, in this white supremacy policy. Well, I thought the most chilling of those documents, uh, in, in, in your section on the war, you, then, you cite you say a number of documents about uh, the, uh, you know, what, what happens with uh, black prisoners when, yes. uh, when they're encountered. Um, but you've got these, these documents between officers discussing uh, what to do now that there are some, uh, uh, that some black troops were not killed on the field. Yeah, and the the uh, uh, you get letters saying uh, unfortunately such captures were made. Yes, uh, you and know, let's the, not the, do this anymore. Don't let this happen again. This yeah. and and they're, the officer is chiding and subordinate. Uh, you know, this is not how we're supposed. There's supposed to be no quarter. Yeah, the phrase no quarter was yeah. used. It is unfortunate that prisoners were taken. Now, ironically, uh, just to show how this, uh, how Confederate ideology, or I should say, neo-Confederate ideology, has distorted all this, uh, the most recent document in the whole book, I'm, I'm jumping ahead, but hmm. is Governor Sonny Perdue's Confederate History Month proclamation just two years ago. He being, of course, the Republican governor of Georgia. And he is now claiming, and this is a fairly standard neo-Confederate claim, uh, what Confeder uh, proclamations are full of whereases, and his whereas goes like this. Whereas among those who served the Confederacy were many African Americans, both free and slave, who saw action in the Confederate armed forces in many combat roles. Well, this, of course, is flatly false. Uh, and one reason that it's false is because the Confederacy flatly wouldn't allow it until the last three weeks before they had to surrender Richmond. And only at this point, and by the narrowest of margins, does the Confederate Congress vote to accept the idea of black troops. And they try to raise about 300 of them in, in two companies in Richmond, uh, but they don't do much before the war ends. So, you know, why would Governor Perdue say something that's so flatly false? I think the answer is that the new, after the civil rights movement of the 1960s and early 70s, um, it's no longer tenable to argue openly for white supremacy. That had been the first fallback position during Reconstruction. But now, during, uh, after what's sometimes called the second Reconstruction, uh, we don't want to talk about that. And so now, if we claim that there were lots of black folks fighting on our side, well, then it could hardly have been about slavery, could it? It could hardly have been about white supremacy. It's not true, and it's a non-sequitur even if it were true, but it's slightly not true. Well, you, you use the analogy, which uh, I look forward to using in class at some point, uh, at the risk of running afoul of Godwin's law, that, that 
There were certainly Jewish German soldiers who fought in yes. Hitler's army. It yes, doesn't mean that Hitler somebody was not killing Jews. I think 83 uh, officers in Hitler's armies who were Jewish. Well, that's, it, it's a non sequitur to say, well, see, that proves that Hitler wasn't anti-Semitic. I mean, the policies of a government are one thing, and then how an individual behaves, given the choices open to him in this case, um, that's another thing entirely. But the, the nail in the, in the whole coffin of that argument is the fact that, um, uh, unlike Hitler, the Confederate government simply did not allow um, black folks to, to serve. Now, I have to say, in a way, there's an analogy. Uh, Jews, if you don't know who they are, Jews can pass as Germans. And there were a few light-skinned black folks who passed as white and served in the, in the Confederate Army. But that's not black serving. I mean, they're not serving as blacks, they're serving as whites. Well, the uh, it's really is a as you say a recent phenomenon. Gary Gallagher's written about it. Uh, uh, Bruce uh, Levine has written about it. Yeah. Uh, in in Confederate Emancipation, the idea of this this vast army. If you uh, listeners may have seen this somewhere on online, there's a, a cartoon of, of, of conversation bubbles of Lee and Grant at Appomattox, and Lee says, "Oh, one more thing. Could you do us a favor?" Could you conceal all reference to the hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of black soldiers in our army? We'd like really? to conceal all evidence of this for the next hundred years. Um, don't mention it in anybody's memoirs. Don't anybody take a photograph. Don't anybody do anything. And Grant yeah. says, sure, of course, we'll, we'll hide all that evidence. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the absurdity that's of a good it. Cartoon. It's quite funny. Uh, but you've got this belief um, that, that, uh, that nonetheless persists. During the war, uh, we talked about the black soldiers as, as one phenomenon, uh, but immediately after the war, slavery becomes untenable. Yeah. Uh, so, so you have this fallback position. You have some documents from, from very well-known Confederate generals in this book that show how they uh, participate. One, I guess one of the neo-Confederate arguments also is to excuse certain leaders from having anything to do with slavery. Uh, and, and again, it seems to me you, you contradict that in, in these documents. Yeah, there's a, there's a tendency to identify the Confederate cause with the personage of Robert E. Lee. And uh, this, this started to happen, happen uh, as soon as the, the war was over, maybe even before the war was over in some ways. Um, and it, you can understand why. First of all, he was a darn good general. I mean, he did make... He wasn't perfect. He did make a few uh, big mistakes, most notably the charge at Gettysburg and, and some other mistakes. Uh, and let's know, not blame that one on Longstreet. That's, that's silly. Um, but, um, uh, and he's also tremendously handsome and looks good in that uniform. Um, and so people say, well, see, he was against slavery all along. He just fought because he had to on behalf of his attacked state. It's not true. He was never against slavery. He, and there's no document showing him against slavery. He was against secession. But once Virginia secedes, he goes along with it. And after the war, he actually makes an argument that uh, Virginia would be better off if the entire black population would leave Virginia. Um, quote, I think it would be better for Virginia if she should get rid of them. And this is no new opinion of me. With me, I've always thought so. Um, well, that's, that's interesting. And then he becomes the key, not just signer, but um, uh, writer of this so-called White Sulphur Manifesto in 1868, which is um, an attempt to 
undermined civil rights during Reconstruction. And it basically lays out the, the uh, uh, platform to, to do away with Reconstruction. And, of course, that was what was done. Um, there's even a claim that we don't put this in the book, and uh, I can't prove it, uh, but there are people who argue that um, Lee was clearly in sympathy with the Ku Klux Klan, and, but he said his support for the Klan had to be invisible because of his position as president of what was Washington University, is now Washington and Lee University. Um, but I'm with you. And so they went and got another Confederate general, of course, to be that, that, support, that key leader nationally, and that was Nathan Bedford Forrest. Um, well, that kind of, I mean, that leaves Lee as a great military general and personally brave and, and all this stuff about Lee to the rear and so on. But uh, it does not leave someone that we should uh, want to look up to with regard to um, his forward-looking policies on race relations. Well, let, let me push back on one element of that. You quote Lee saying Virginia would be better off if all the African Americans were gone. And when I read that in the book, I was struck by the echo of Abraham Lincoln's meeting with the black delegation to discuss. Well, you've got a point there. Mm -hmm. the, the, and, and, and Lincoln says uh, in discussing colonization, uh, it's, it's not your fault. It's just we are two different races, and you would be happier elsewhere, and we would be happier without you. Um, in, in other words, Lincoln, and, and people who accuse Lincoln of being a racist cite this all the time. My argument is that he... This just shows that Lincoln, like almost everyone else in the 19th century, could not conceive of a multiracial, uh, multicultural society such as we aspire to today. That just was not on the political horizon yet. But can we defend Lee in the same terms, that he just could not, now that slavery was gone, he couldn't conceive of a rational, uh, peaceful adjustment of the two races living in the same society? Well, you have a point. Let me say two things about it, though. Um, first, Lincoln did say some other things, mm -hmm. uh, most notably and most famously when he was walking through Richmond the day after Richmond was liberated by U.S. forces. He says to an enormous crowd, mostly black, although there were also some white supporters in, from Richmond, uh, he says to the black crowd, now, you should have all the rights uh, guaranteed you under the Constitution, and, and uh, he makes it clear that he means equal rights. Um, guaranteed to anyone under the Constitution. He says this also uh, back in Washington two days before he's killed, and in fact, it, uh, I think a, a few days, I don't know if it's mm -hmm. days, and uh, John Wilkes Booth hears him, and, and uh, that strengthens his resolve to do the deed. Uh, so I think Lincoln could imagine, but you're right, uh, for many years and well into his presidency, uh, Lincoln's main solution was to get rid of the blacks, and it does sound like uh, that's what Robert E. Lee is proposing um, but I don't think that Lee means it quite the same way. Uh, I think that um, he would simply rather have Virginia with no blacks in it just because it'd be nicer. Uh, mm -hmm. It would be more attractive. By, well, he agrees. Uh, it would be more attractive by the absence of the colored race. Um, on the other hand, I'm going to stick up for Lee in one regard. He produced a heck of a daughter. Uh, his daughter... Actually, during the, the nadir of race relations, this terribly racist period that sets in in 1890, um, tries to defend blacks' rights to sit anywhere on streetcars, which they had been doing. But now, uh, as the nadir of race relations clamps in and we get more and more racist, they are uh, required to sit in the back. 
So I don't know if, if Bobby can take credit for that or not. Maybe Mrs. Lee does, or maybe she did it. The, the daughter did it on her own. But she took a courageous stand there. I think she lost too. Well, the it's interesting. You know, when you talk about the nature of race relations beginning around 1890, yeah, uh, that that's something uh, uh, often not taught very clearly in history books. It's something we'll have to come back and talk about in just a minute. We'll take another short break. This is Civil War Talk Radio, talking today with Jim Lowen. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be right back. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Typically, the winning side of a war builds monuments to its success. The Confederate monuments begin to appear around the country after 1890. Did the Confederacy win after all? We'll be back to talk about that on Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to talk. Are you looking for tips, tricks, secrets, and techniques that you can use anywhere, anytime, on virtually any problem? Tune in to Magic at Your Fingertips with EFT virtuoso Teresa Bolin. You are a divine manifestation of love and light. Take back control of your life and create the life that you want using EFT, Emotional Freedom Techniques. You'll overcome the obstacles that stand in the way of living your heart's desire. Magic at Your Fingertips airs live at 6 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern, and 10 p.m. in Japan on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Jim Lowen. He's a co-editor of The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, The Great Truth About the Lost Cause, a fascinating collection of documents uh, going back as far as the debate over the Constitution up through the secession era, the war itself, and then the post-war Reconstruction era, uh, the nadir of race relations, which we'll talk about momentarily, uh, and on up to the present, looking at how uh, the Confederates, those who would become the Confederates, and then those who did secede, justified their actions at the time, and how those actions have been reinterpreted since uh, for, for various political reasons as the years have gone by. Um, Jim, one thing that, that I, I find striking uh, with my own students, and, and that I, I'm guessing you encountered with yours, is this uh, historical am- amnesia, something not taught in history books, certainly when I was growing up, of, that in the post-Civil War years, race relations throughout the South were relatively amicable uh, to the extent there was still political competition between a multiracial Republican Party and an all-white Democratic Party. 
maybe amicable is the wrong word, but there was uh, there was still a certain amount of uh, of freedom of political power for uh, African Americans in the South, and this continued even after the. Uh, uh, the the, the government seized control. Yeah. It, it, there's like a ten year period after the the election of Hayes, after the end of Reconstruction, when when what you call the fusion period, yeah. uh, white Democrats are in power, but they still share crumbs of that power with black Southerners. Yeah. And then that comes to a screeching halt, yeah. uh, and things get much much worse. Yeah. I don't think what most happened? folks know anything about that, and no. we don't even exactly have a name for it. The number one name is the fusion period. Uh, some folks even call it the confusion period. Uh, African Americans are still voting across the South. Um, they're not voting freely to, to, to a great degree, especially in really important races. And so we may find that um, the, the Democrats insist on counting the black votes for for Democrats, for governor, uh, also for sheriff in a, in a county, but black folks will be able to elect some blacks or some white Republicans even uh, to, say, offices as coroner or um, uh, some of the, let's say, two of the five county commissioners, things like that. Um, and then finally, around 1890, well, exactly in 1890 in Mississippi, uh, Democrats have had enough of this. Um, they are, after all, still maintaining the white supremacy ideology of the uh, Confederate uh, Confederacy, and um, so it, it is an outrage to them that they have to be nice to black folks and, and work for their votes. And so Mississippi openly in 1890 passes a new state constitution that removes blacks from citizenship. No longer can they vote. No longer can they be on, on juries. And they say so when they're going into the convention. Everybody knows what it's about. And nevertheless, despite the fact that this is illegal by the 14th and 15th amendments to the constitution, the U.S. does nothing. Well, seeing this success, every other southern state and the states as far away as Oklahoma follows suit by 1907. And this is uh, something that seems to me historians are wrestling with in all kinds of ways. Uh, my colleague Charles Calhoun here at ECU has written a book, uh, Conceiving a New Republic, on the Republican Party, and he stresses the, the Lodge Elections Bill of 1890, the last uh, that's, national that's attempt great, by the Republicans. To, to, to try to that control that. I don't know about that. This is a bill that's kind of like the Voting Rights Act of 1965. It's not as good, but it's not a bad bill either. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it passes the, um, the House, and it more or less is, goes down to defeat in the Senate by a single vote. I say more or less because it never really came to the floor for a vote mm -hmm. uh, because they thought they would lose. Um, well, it would have been signed into law by President, Republican President Benjamin Harrison, of course. And what I think happened, and I, I hope it's what he says, uh, is that afterwards the Democrats, as they always did when they defeated a civil rights measure, of course they didn't defeat them all, but when they defeated one, they tried to tar the Republicans, uh, quote, you, you folks ain't nothing but a bunch of nigger lovers. And in the past, the, the Republicans, I think, had replied, well, you're darn right, it's an outrage what you guys are doing every, every November election down in the South. Um, but I think in 1891 they made a new reply, and the new reply was, no, we aren't. And if you remember what the charge was, that that's a chilling reply. We're moving on to new issues. And so at this point, I think the, the uh, African-American population becomes without allies politically. Is this kind of what he argues? It, very, very much. And it ties Good. with what David Blight argues, uh, yeah. the same thing, that, that the northern and southern veterans are willing to reconcile 
Yeah, uh, and the reconciliation is kind of over the dead bodies of African Americans. <laughs> now, there are other factors um, that, that, that uh, Calhoun's book and, and Blight's book don't stress, uh, nor yours for that matter. This is also the era of the populists, that, that you know, the Panic of 1893, uh, the economy is in a very, very bad state in the early 1890s, and uh, people are being pushed to the brink, small farmers in the South and the West. And one solution among small farmers in the South is a populist party as an interracial coalition. And that has to be smashed if you are already in power. And, 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 there, and there's other, there's other interracial coalitions all through the, the 1876 to end of uh, the fusion period era. I, say, I, I could say 1876 to 1890, but that's, of course, uh, limited to Mississippi. Blacks are still voting in North Carolina until about no, 1901, I think, and, and they're mm-hmm. voting in, in Alabama until 1890, whatever it was. You know, uh, it varies in each state. And so you get not only the populists, but also the readjusters in uh, mm-hmm. Virginia and other groups in other states. And so it is always an ever-present threat that an interracial coalition will win statewide. And, in fact, they did win statewide in, in at least three states. They didn't take office every time because of the Democrats wouldn't, wouldn't let them. Yeah, the, um, the Wilmington, which you cite, Wilmington, North yeah. Carolina, the scene of uh... – Really, the only uh, literal armed coup d'état in American history: the, yeah. the, the white Democrats remove at gunpoint the, the elected conf- Republican officials and, and take over. Yeah. You know, there's a, a. I'm bragging on all my colleagues. Uh, Dr. Zip, Karen Zip of our department, has produced a website, and uh, listeners can Google the Wilmington riot and find uh, her website that, that looks into this and has a lot of sources on it. Uh, in well, and you know, detail. the city of, uh, I don't know, not the city, but in the city of Wilmington, on the 100th anniversary, and I know because I went to this, um, mm-hmm. they actually commemorated it, and at that point they did various things, one of which was they put up a new and accurate historical marker right at the scene of the photo in my book, uh, the Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, mm-hmm. uh, the scene of where the uh, newspaper, the black newspaper editor's uh, newspaper was that got burned out, and of course he had to flee for his life. And now there's a there's an accurate um, historical marker that set, that tells about this. And this is quite an accomplishment because for about 99 years, Wilmington had, especially whites in Wilmington, had uh, literally uh, enforced amnesia on this topic. But finally, it's come back to life. And I think the same thing really has happened to the entire interpretation of. The, of what the Civil War was all about. I think it's literally come back to life. We now are able to go back and read the documents and, and say why the South seceded the same, in the same words that everybody said at the time. And this idiotic um, mishistory of the 1890 to 1940 era, I think it's time we put it behind us. Well, let me, let me ask a, a, a question about that, about how, how to go about doing that. I, sure. Well, let me, let me say two things real quick. Go ahead. Um, I, last Friday, I was the keynote speaker for the, Associ- the American Association for State and Local History. Mm-hmm. And as part of my, it was supposed to be a funny speech. It was after the banquet and all, uh, and that was kind of funny. But then as part of my speech, I did that same vote that we talked about about 45 minutes ago on this show, mm-hmm. namely, why did the South secede? And darn if these 400 people at this banquet who run small and even large state and, and local history museums all across the U.S., not just across the South. Mm-hmm. Darn if they didn't get it wronger, if you will, even than teachers. In this case, over 80% of them said 
states' rights. Uh, only 10% said slavery. Uh, so it was just terrible. Uh, and these are the folks who are going to be trying to get it right during the next five years. So what I want to suggest that, read, that listeners do is, um, or readers, if you're reading this on the web, I don't know how you can read it, um, go get the book, The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader. You don't get convinced by me in this book. You actually get convinced by the Confederates themselves, and you see what they said, and then you see how the Neo-Confederates distorted it. But don't take notes in the book. Keep it nice. And then take the book itself and give it to your history teacher or your kid's history teacher at the nearby high school or middle school and say, look, we've got to get this right. It's been 150 years. That's enough lies. And I think we can fix this problem. Well, I'll go you one better. I'll say go ahead and take all the notes you want in the book, listeners, then buy a second copy and give that to your well, child's okay. teacher uh, uh, and, and spread this around. You. The, uh, uh, it, it's... Um, I guess the challenge, a recent study I heard talked about on the radio, and <clears throat> pardon me, uh, pointed out that psychologically, people who have a, a certain strongly any certain any strongly held belief, if shown factual evidence directly counter to that belief, respond psychologically by strengthening their belief. Oh, I hope not. That, that and, and that's, well, that, that's what I'm asking. Is maybe uh, are we up people, against something? Yes. But, but I mean, for instance, the folks on last Friday night when I was giving this talk, they were looking up at me with their mouth open. It looked to me like they were open to this new information. And my book sold out at the conference, uh, the Confederate, Neo-Confederate Reader, I mean. Um, so I think they were open to, to new information. And, and when I, the very first time I ever gave my little referendum was actually in Greensboro, North Carolina. And it was to the Greensboro History Museum uh, back in maybe 18, I mean 18, 19, maybe 96 or something. I was the Dorch Lecturer, which is a, an honorable post. I, I was very happy to be it. And um, after, it's the first time I did my little election. And, and they were slightly better than most teachers. About 50% of them, maybe a little more, said states' rights. But it wasn't as bad as 65%. Um, mm. And then I proceeded to, to read them from these documents. And these were grown men and women. You know, these were 50- and 60- and 70-year-old people interested in history, uh, a full hall, incidentally, and they were even piping it in by TV to, to the next room. Uh, I think they were open to new information. I've even found that many Sons of Confederate Veterans types are open to new information and realize after they read the documents, well, you know, it was over slavery. We can still commemorate the bravery of the troops. We can still commemorate the severity of the war and the, and the casualties that my family took, for that matter. But we're going to have to give up on claiming that the cause was just. I think that that was a point I was going to ask you about, and I think that hits it on the head, that uh, there have, if you're going to replace a myth, you need a better myth, not just facts. And uh, by having the documents there that, that really brook no argument, uh, you accomplish that on the one hand, but what you just said about acknowledging uh, that there can still be bravery in a bad cause, as Grant said, uh, you know, no, no army ever fought better or for a worse cause. Yeah. Um, and you know, there, there were Confederate even officers who have made this transition. I mean, if you look at what people like uh, General Mahone, uh, uh, Long, uh, Long, what's, what's his name, the second in command at Gettysburg? Well, Longstreet. Longstreet. Yeah. I, I, mm -hmm. For some reason, I was blanking on this last uh -huh. syllable. Uh, what they did after the war, not just those two either, uh, Chalmers and others, 
they actually realized these black folks are people. Um, slavery was wrong. Um, let's let's uh, make a change, and and they worked for that change. And so I think people can do that today too. Well, I, I think so. I think there there's, there's hope for that. I found uh, curiously by by illustrating examples of northern racism and and recasting the war from uh, north good south bad viewpoint to uh, uh, look. This is the 19th century. Everyone's got different views. Yeah. Uh, let's just be honest about them. Uh, well, one can a lot often of have some a lot of neo confederates have attacked um, people who attack them. That is, attack northern do-gooders, if you will, and say, mm-hmm. yeah, well, look at all the racists in the north. Look at Lincoln. Um, some people argue that Grant held slaves. He didn't, but that's mm-hmm. all. Um, and, and then they look at the uh, people uh, who attacked them and said, well, you guys just leave out the, the racism in the north. But you can't attack me on that score. That, I, I can attack me on other scores maybe, but by gosh, I did write the book Sundown Towns, which is sure. about all white communities that flat, flatly kept out blacks, and they are all across the north, and less so across the South. Uh, so I'm not against the South. I, I enjoyed my time in Mississippi and go back there often. Um, however, the, nevertheless, the Confederacy did secede for secession, I mean for slavery, darn it, and it was all about white supremacy. And the people who lie about it today, many of them are still, in the, in the back of their minds, they're still in favor of white supremacy. Well, that's that's uh, and that's perhaps the most chilling thought. If, if that's the case, then it is going to be hard to change minds, documents or not. But these documents really do present to the the reader who's, who's curious and wants to get the story right. Yeah. Uh, uh, they 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 lay it out. The uh, it's it's not a comfortable book to read. I'll be honest. Uh, no. It it does show some uh, uh, difficult times in our past, but it does. Uh, provide but, ammunition. You know, we want we want countries, other countries, to face their past. We want Germany to face its past. We want you know what is now Russia to face its past. We've got to face our past too, and we can do it. Well, I, I think so. And, and and doing it in this way is uh, is what historians do: is, is go back to the original documents, see what people were saying at the time, yeah, and and take it in from there. What are you working on? A new project? Oh, you know what I'm doing right now is I'm actually trying to um, get this problem dealt with because we are into the sesquicentennial, you know, the 150th anniversary. So I'm going to spend a lot of time just this year um, trying to get folks turned around so that both historic sites and uh, high schools across America start telling the truth about this one. So I'm just going to sit on this one for about a year. Well, it's a, a worthy project from a historical point of view, and uh, wish you success with it. And thanks for being on the show today. Okay, my pleasure. And readers, Bye-bye. listeners, you'll want to get hold of The Confederate and Neo-Confederate Reader, edited by James Lowen and Edward Sebesta. You'll enjoy reading it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio 